everybody, welcome to FinTech Insider Live. My name is Sam All, I'm the Managing Director of North America for 11FS. We are the coolest challenger consultancy firm in the world, but based in London, just outside of Liverpool Street. Don't take my word for it, we were voted the number one banking consultancy firm at the British Banking Awards a couple weeks ago. We have the trophy to prove it. The other thing we do is we run the biggest FinTech podcast globally called, shockingly, FinTech Insider. We have swag somewhere, there's merch floating around. Make sure you get a t-shirt before you leave. It's easy enough to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, etc. So today we're recording this live in New York City, but basically we're on UK soil. So we're at the 2019 UK Trade Mission to New York FinTech Week. Great name. Um, and it's sponsored by the Department of International Trade. We are in front of a live audience who is drinking, so you might hear some interesting comments as we go on. And I'll be damned, we got somebody in uniform up in front. We will definitely talk later. I'm ex-Navy, <laughs> ex so we'll, we'll talk about that later. On today's show, our guests and I are going to discuss the future of money, the next wave of innovation, and what it looks like, what impact it will have on a global scale, and basically why the UK rocks when it comes to innovation and fintech. For today, there is no argument, London is the fintech capital of the world, sorry. New York, there you go. Home team, there you go. All right, so our guests, listen to them real quick, and I'm gonna give them like a 10 second chance to explain what their company or organization does. They go past 10 seconds, I'm just gonna turn their mic off. So, sitting next to me, we have Natalie Cini, who's the chair at Innovate Finance. Say hi, Natalie. Hi, um, right, Innovate Finance, we're the UK's FinTech members body, and our job is to make the UK the best possible place to be a FinTech. And I'm also, with a different hat, a couple of weeks ago published an independent review into the future of cash in the UK. So welcome, Natalie. Next, we have Robin McKenzie, Chief Marketing Officer for De La Rue, and it's actually not next to he's way over there, but oh well, <laughs> on my thing, he's next. Yeah, so my, my name is Robin McKenzie. Uh, De La Rue, as a company, uh, among other things, is the world's largest commercial printer of banknotes. Um, so I have a distinct personal and professional interest in the future of cash. <laughs> we'll get there. All right, then we have Andrew Boyden, who's the head of North America for TransferWise, that tiny little company. Hey, I'm Andrew. I uh, hope you guys know what TransferWise is already, but if you don't, we're one of the world's leading companies, helping people like you send money around the world a lot faster and cheaper than you ever thought possible. And he has a great British accent, obviously. Farrah yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> Lakhani is the director for growth and operations at Oak North Analytical Intelligence. Hi everyone, um, at Oak North AI, we are using analytical intelligence, machine learning to um, automate and um, accelerate uh, SME loan lifecycle. So if you notice, we have an incredibly diverse panel. I mean, we're talking cash and notes, we're talking AI, we hit the buzzword, which is wonderful. We got remittance and payments. We've got innovation, you all are doing a good job since the UK is doing so great. So for those of you, the two of you that aren't familiar, let me kind of set the scene a little bit. Um, when it comes to fintechs, so we're talking financial technology, when it comes to that space, incredibly hot space, when we're talking about VC money, when we're talking about every single one of you probably has five or six apps on your phone right now, obviously TransferWise being one of them, um, <laughs> th this is commonplace at this point. And it's a fascinating to see how the UK is really leading when it comes to fintech. So think of Challenger Brings. We just talked about this earlier today at Empire Startups. In the US, since 2008, there's been one banking license granted. One. In the UK, oh my God, uh, Monzo, Starling, we can sit here all day and start talking about banks. 
and going on and on to these challenger banks that have come up and really disrupting the space. We look at what they're doing around new customer products and services, and they're deliberately designing around the customer. The customer is at the heart of that. What a shocking concept, <laughs> right? Um, and so when we look again at mobile and digital plays across different apps when it comes to financial services, again, the UK, in our opinion, is leading the way for that. So if the UK are global leaders in fintech and money movement space, they're basically leading the way for other geographies to go and look and say, how can we do that? And that's what we want to talk about a lot today. There's lessons learned coming out of the UK and how would you apply them in the US? And if you're a founder and you're very interested in what's going on in the London market and in the UK market, we'll talk about that too and bring it in. So basically, we're going to talk about the future of money, what happens next, and then the really hard discussion, how do you apply that in the US. There'll be zero politics. I swear to God, we won't say any of the B words or T R. Yeah, okay. We won't do any of those. The bar's closed, so why do it? After, we'll go drink and we'll be okay. All right, so let's jump into this. All right, talking about UK fintech innovation and a concept of driving the UX and the, the experience around customer centricity, which is a, it sounds like a lot, but it really is. So, for my guests, when we talk about the notion of digitalization, and not digitization, but real digitalization, driving innovation, do you think this is actually catching on at a global scale? And actually, let's just go ahead and talk about the US. Do you think it's really getting adopted here? I mean, as so we are truly a digital bank in the UK, Oak North Bank. Um, so for us, digital is everything, right? But I would be hard pressed to find a similar bank in the US that literally is completely digital. Way back when, before the crisis, there was a bank called ING Direct, which, <laughs> which was digital, but obviously all of us know what happened to that. So the idea of digital is sort of in our DNA, right? And the backbone of our whole process is an AI platform. So you, you can't get any more digital and automation than that, right? So to, the, to that extent, it's definitely something that if the US is behind, which it is, it needs to truly catch up because the world is going that way. And whether you talk about taking online deposits, lending money um, to either really small businesses, large businesses, middle market businesses, automation and digitalization is just the name of the game now. That's just established. Uh, so that's, in our case, it has done really well, but it, the US is definitely behind. What about the audience? Would you actually agree with that? Just by a show of hands, that works so well on a podcast, but I'll kind of give the... You think the U.S. is ahead or behind? Let's go with the head. One dude literally put <laughs> his hand agree. up and then put it down as fast as he could. All right, so we got one hand. Yeah, I think we have one, yeah. There is a digital bank. There is a digital bank There's in one. the U.S. I agree. Yep, so we'll, we'll, let's touch on that real quick and then I'll move off. So Chime is a good example of that. It's a digital bank. And quickly move past that, I would argue Chime is not a bank. They yeah. don't have a banking charter. Unlike exactly. Monzo or Starling, Chime operates off of, I believe, Sutton Bank and Bancor. They're not holding deposits and lending. And I don't mean that to be mean, but Chime is an excellent UX, but it's not a bank. Yes, sir. Well, I think that's actually a really good point. Thank and you. We're done. Yeah, right. <laughs> is the bar back open? Uh, no, so I, I do think that banks are relatively so, like actual banks, those that hold charters, whether it's state or, or national. But instead, what you see in terms of moving towards a digital service are just financial services. And I think Chime's a great example of that. You also see uh, aspects like Venmo, things like that. 
So payments, uh, to an extent, you know, types of lending and stuff like that are definitely moving towards digital, but banks themselves are, are not quite there yet. So an interesting point, I think I'm actually going to um, throw this to you, Natalie, so I'm sorry, out of the blue. But on the flip side, how much innovation is too much innovation, and who, lose, who actually loses out when things move too digitally? Well, the challenge is we've still got, whether it's the UK or US, a significant population that just aren't digital. So in the UK, I have a population of just under 70 million. Um, we've got just under 2 million who are unbanked. Um, last year, shocking statistics, 8.5% of the UK population didn't access the internet. Uh, we don't have full broadband and mobile connectivity. So, and, and the figures in the US are worse um, by head of population. So we do have a challenge, actually across the developed world, of what do we do about those people who aren't yet digital? And they're disproportionately not just the old, but the poor and the classic vulnerable. So if you look at people with a disability, 22% didn't access the internet last year in the UK. So that's the population we've got a challenge for. And we, we do have some examples of fintechs who are explicitly designing for the vulnerable, but they're not particularly profitable. And that's not mainstream enough. And if we're going to get everybody there, we've got to explicitly target everybody's needs and not just the mainstream. So as, as the, really not an outsider, but as the, the one who has to stir up trouble a little bit, one thing I do find interesting, because everywhere I go, banks are my big client, right? And I'm focused on the U.S., North America. So I constantly get asked about open banking, I get asked about PSD2 and GDPR and such. So let's take PSD2, for example, and the concept of open banking. So January 18th, I believe, was the deadline when the banks had to actually meet the requirements of open banking and PSD2. I think... 46% missed, it was 40-something percent, you got Google, you can check me. A large percentage missed that date or asked for extensions. But what I thought was more interesting wasn't that, is the, I believe I read some consumer sur surveys in the UK where they asked them their awareness of open banking. I believe it was 93% had no clue what that actually meant. So I think that's something both of us, um, all of us on the stage and you in the audience, we're too close to the flame when it comes to this, right? Y'all aren't normal. <laughs> I'm definitely not normal, but we're not normal, right? Um, we're not the typical consumer. And I think you have to keep the customer in mind and the products and the services that we're providing. So let's, let's pivot just a little bit. I love this section. So Laura in the back, wave your hand, Laura. Laura Watkins, our producer, she puts the show notes together. She's fantastic. And I love this, this title of the section. It's called Breaking America. <laughs> we're doing a good job of that. Um, so... For y'all, what's the appetite, do you think, for fintech in the U.S.? And I thought start with TransferWise, because you actually are, you cover both markets. So we what do, do you think? Yeah. Uh, so I think there is an appetite for fintech in the U.S., um, but again, it, it's, it's pretty new. So one of the drivers that we saw in the U.K. was a huge dissatisfaction with all the high street banks in the wake of the recession. And uh, I, I would argue that people here in the U.S., we're not really wild about our banks either, but we're also not to the point where we might, let's say, sort of march in the streets against that. Uh, that was actually a really good PR stunt, though, that worked well for us in the UK. So right now, I, I think Americans are becoming more aware of FinTech and its actual um, application then to sort of their needs. TransferWise is a great example. It's really, really expensive and slow to send money overseas, uh, something that's universal. It's not just uh, sort of a, an issue in Europe. And Americans realize that, and we see great numbers here as a result. Yeah, there's actually a great question from the audience. I won't, I won't say who it did, but I like this. And it was, when will international money transfer ever be free? 
fantastic question. Actually, <laughs> you know, I have no idea. Uh, I will say that we are leading in driving that price down. So currently it costs around 7% for the World Bank to send money overseas. Uh, Transferwise, we generally do it for less than 1%. Uh, you know, we have a vision that it should be free, and a lot of people focus on that and try to figure out, well, what's the business model? When is it actually going to be free? Uh, for me, it's just more important to show that 7% is way, way, way too high, and it is possible to run a profitable business at 1%. Yeah, one thing that's interesting, um, we're about to see another UK invasion here in the US. So the challenger banks that have been incredibly successful overseas, and full disclosure, one of the co-founders, 11FS, was a co-founder at Starling and at Monzo, Jason Bates. So I'm slightly biased uh, when it comes to that. But the challenger banks, several of them have applied for banking licenses and are coming here. Do you think they're going to be successful? I can answer that very easily because we are a challenger bank in the UK as well. In fact, we were one of the first ones to get a banking license in 150 years in the UK before the Monzos and the Starlings of the world. So we can easily say, yes, we are very profitable in the UK, we have obviously built our platform, etc. But in the US, we, have not, we are not going to be a bank, right? My job is not, I'm not a bank chartered entity here in the US. Um, I'm a true fintech, right? I'm selling to other banks, commercial banks in the US. So the, the way we are tackling the problem that is existent in the US where the banks, nobody's happy with their banks, I think we established that. Um, there's a lot more technology and, and new innovations happening on the consumer side. So how you interact with the bank on your day-to-day -day consumer activities. There's a lot less innovation on the lending side on how a business, a growing business, goes to a commercial bank and gets money to run their business. That's the problem we are tackling. And that's seriously the way these banks are going to wake up and say, we are really struggling. There is, there is no fintech that is helping us um, accelerate lending to small businesses, right? It's not the very large businesses, it's not the very small businesses. There's technology on both ends, it's the middle piece that is really squeezed. And, that's our way of disruption, right? It's not being a bank here, it's not taking all sorts of deposits and all that stuff. Our way of disrupting the US market is how do we use our AI platform, which we've taught over the last three, three four years and have, oh, by the way, proof that it's profitable um, and disrupt the banks that way. So I think the way you think about FinTech in the US, a lot of us think about it from the payments sort of consumer side, but there is a whole host of problems that fintech can easily solve on the lending side as well, which you know you and I on a daily basis won't see unless you're running a business, paying people, have a payroll yeah. to meet, etc. So um, that's the way I think there is. There are ways of disrupting, but it doesn't always have to be the exact same model in the UK applied here. Could I ask you guys a question? Because it seems to me no. that innovation. Sorry, I'm taking over the role. <laughs> But innovation is a fantastic thing, and, and usually the innovation in tech that works is it makes something that you've always done better, faster, or cheaper. And, and I, what I don't quite know, and I'm interested to get your perspective on, is whether that hasn't yet been achieved, or there are other things in the US which limit existing use cases like that actually progressing and, and landing. Yeah, let me give I you one, which is interesting, um, and it's actually a note that, that Laura gave me on here. I have to call it out, Laura, because I love you so much. Um, one thing that's unique about doing business in the U.S. is besides the federal government, you then have the states. Exactly. And as Laura noted, there are 52 states with different approaches. 
50. I was going to say, Laura. Well, yeah. I'm confused 50. about the extra two. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. But they're, they're 50. Territories. I, I actually almost Googled that to look it up because yeah. I thought, oh my God, is there 52 or 50? But you have that challenge here. And the, and the regulatory Absolutely. environment is, I mean, we here in Innovate Finance, from anyone who's trying to come into the US, the regulatory environment is one of the biggest barriers because, yeah, you have two things at a state level and a federal level, and you've got lots of different federal agencies who don't all agree with each other. And you contrast that to the UK. I mean, one of the reasons the UK has been so successful in fintech is we've got joined up regulators who think the same way. Our main regulator, um, the FCA, um, has a competition mandate, so it explicitly looks to encourage innovation. Um, and our uh, other regulators have explicitly seen challenger banks as a way of reducing the dominance of um, the major banks and are even forcing the diversion of money that, their way. So we've got a regulatory environment that explicitly wants fintech to succeed and challenge incumbents, which feels very, very different from the US market. Yeah, there's actually a good question. Zoe Webster, where are you at? Give me a wave. Hey, Zoe, good question. And she, she had asked us earlier, is there anything more the UK government can do to help accelerate fintech innovation and or keep ahead? Um, what I would flip that is, is what lessons can the U.S. government actually take from what's happening, not only in the U.K., but Singapore is a great example yep. of that, mm -hmm. what we're seeing in the Middle East, yep. mm -hmm. right? I mean, there, there are so many interesting um, uh, sandboxes, sandboxes and, and the, the integration of the government with the banking and fintech community that really needs to be adopted here. I think there's only one state in the U.S. that has a sandbox, and it's Arizona. I don't know why. <laughs> they, they do? I mean, it is a sandbox. Sand, well, right? There's sand. Okay. <laughs> Give him a drink, because that was a great answer. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, first of all, in sandboxes, I think they, they can be really great, but they can also be really bad. It yeah. really just depends on who's running it and how much they're actually paying attention to it and what they're trying to get out of it. Uh, you know, I've seen both sides of the spectrum there. Uh, one other thing before we navigate too far away from it, though, uh, while, as, as one of the Americans here, uh, you know, while our regulatory system is, is obviously fractured and it's disjointed and they don't talk to each other and they have different objectives and so forth, um, there is another impediment, I think, to some innovation, and that goes back to our actual financial infrastructure. Okay. Uh, so when we think about our ACH system and the speed at which things clear and settle, it's obviously a lot slower than what we would see in the UK, what we see in Singapore, even what we would see potentially in Mexico with their real-time system. Uh, and the U.S. is struggling a little bit to, to come out and sort of figure out what is the ubiquitous real-time payment system that we want to have here. Um, that is a change we'll see soon, I think. Uh, but again, it, it's uh, a bit of a detriment right now. Yeah, it's interesting. We're the, we're the country that finally, finally introduced CHIP and SIG. All right, yeah. we'll move right past that. <laughs> I know every person that's over here from the U.K., when you've done your credit card, you're like, seriously? That's it? You're not going to ask me for squat? Um, let's move into a topic near and dear to Robin's heart. He's like, oh, my God, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. <laughs> future of money movement. So the biggest question surrounding the future of money is the future of physical money itself. And the ongoing debate about whether cash will remain king as banking and bank services become increasingly digital. Everybody knows how much Robin has set up. So let's talk about that cash versus cashless. Here in New York, that's a big topic. Yeah. Um, there was... Uh, um, multiple articles talking about stores, you know, not taking cash, right? And I think Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, they're, they're actually passed legislation saying you have to take cash. Yeah. So what do you think? Is cash dying? Is it, are we going to go cashless? 
Um, I, I don't actually believe it's the right debate. I think, I think cash, uh, and you would expect me to say this, has a, has a long future um, alongside the innovation that we see in fintech. Uh, and I think it's going to be a changing role. So I think we will, we will probably see less cash over time, but from a very dominant position. Um, and that's absolutely right. What we should see, and we should all be focused on, are, are really three things. Consumer payments that are inclusive, by definition, consumer payments that are secure, and consumer payments that have resilience built in. Uh, and that means that consumers know that they're making the right choices, that they have a choice, and they can pick the right method for them. So what we see is not uh, a cash versus cashless, but a need for inclusion. Uh, and it's, it's almost bizarre that something that is legal tender in the form of currency, a, a retailer or a bar can say, I, you can't pay with that. It's, a kind of, it's a, almost an extraordinary thing to say, I won't accept cash, which is a legal tender. We, we had an interesting conversation right before we came up on this, Natalie. Do you want to kind of enlighten the audience a little bit on your opinion here? Yeah, so, so the challenge is, um, if I look, if look at the UK stats, if we go back 10 years ago, um, six out of every 10 transactions were in cash. Last year, it was just over three in 10. And our forecasts are that um, in 10 to 15 years, we'll be down to one out of 10. But that still means that one out of 10 transactions will be in cash. And the research I, I led for the Access to Cash Review showed that just under 20% of the UK population just can't, at the moment, go digital for a whole host of reasons. Um, some of it is structural, they don't have broadband where they live or don't have mobile connectivity. Some of it's disability, age. The biggest reason why it's very hard to go digital is actually poverty. If you, if you need to budget, having money in your hands and knowing that you've got £50 to last a week um, and no, not being worried about a direct debit going out, that, that's a big deal. But the challenge is that um, as society goes fast towards being less cash, I agree we're not going to go cashless quickly, the cash infrastructure actually falls apart and we're already starting to see that collapse. So we're seeing, we've seen bank branches close for many years, we're now see, starting to see the ATM network close. And we looked at countries like Sweden which are fast on that path and they're finding their infrastructure has gone past the point of no return and they're now panicking. Um, and I think that's where some of the debate about cash acceptance is coming from, because when shops only take a little bit of cash and their bank branch is closed and it's hard to pay in the cash, well, it's easy to go cashless. And then you've got a segment of society that just can't function. All right, Ross and Alan, where are you at, Ross? Oh, sitting right up front. So is the kids up front. You gotta watch. <laughs> All right, Ross uh, actually made a comment. Cash is great. Cars and phones are great. Yeah, I agree with that. Checks? <laughs> What's a check? When will the UK and US each see their last check signed? What a great question. Listen, I lived in the UK in 2006, and supposedly checks were going to go away. Checks still there? Four million was, was signed last Four year. Million? Four million? Four yeah. million. Uh, bless. A lot of grandmothers writing a little <laughs> gift to a kid. I mean, what are they? Is it small businesses? Is, what is it? Do you know? What's that? France. France? We're white in France? We're definitely on UK soil. That yeah. was incredible. <laughs> That was a great answer. Yeah, in the U.S., we still use checks. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't tell you the last time I wrote a check, but I know they exist. They're still there. It, it is interesting to see here in the U.S. one thing, and actually somebody asked a question about this. I thought it was pretty good. In the U.S., uh, the whole concept of money movement is yeah. a big deal. One of the uh, fintech players that really did take off was Venmo mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> through Braintree here in New York. PayPal owns them now. So the, the ability to move cash. Yeah. So, I mean, again, maybe it's semantics, right? But you could argue Venmo doesn't really move money. 
Uh, so exactly. It, yeah, it's just sort of value back and forth. Um, Something like Zelle, not to like plug it because there are certainly some problems with Zelle, but Zelle is actually moving money. And Zelle's seeing massive growth, right? Yeah, yeah, Here in the US, it really is. It's easy to make fun of it because the name is god awful horrible. I'm sorry if you like the name, it sucks. It doesn't First, make you think about money moving fast like a yeah. Zelle. Yeah, whereas Venmo does. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, naming of stuff, never get caught up too much in names. But yeah, it's, it's, I agree. It's fascinating to see it refuse to die, right? It's the Monty Python skit, I'm not dead yet. Yeah, I mean, just no, doesn't go away. One, you can make cash exciting though, because um, you need to give a booth or something where you had that uh, that that um, currency that you showed me with the yeah. Star Wars on it, and you can put. Yeah, you so can we um, saber sign up. I think Natalie's right. We we all have a responsibility to innovate, and we've uh, we've tried to demonstrate that the sort of currency can be exciting. We did a partnership with with Great and with uh, Disney uh, last year, where we created a commemorative note uh, for the launch of uh, the last Star Wars movie. Um, and we created about 1,050 of these notes. They demonstrate some of the features that go into uh, traditional banknotes. Um, it doesn't have a value other than being a collector's item. And we created, just through that campaign, some genuine interest in what a banknote can be, the features that go into it, and managed to raise a, a ton of money for charity. And I think all of us in the industry need to drive that kind of innovation and that kind of uh, excitement into what can be a truly dynamic part of a consumer's life, the yeah, currency think, they hold. I think on the flip side of that, and we're, we're going to give AI the shout out now, right? <laughs> um, on the flip side of that, the argument is the tracking, right? And, yes. and analytics and data yeah. and really being able to personalize and do that. And so I know that's something that Oak North deals with too. Yeah, I mean, data, you know, is the lifeblood of AI, right? If you don't have data and you don't have enough of it, AI doesn't exist, basically. So I think one of the things that we um, talk about a lot is, yes, there's all this data that the consumers are voluntarily handing over to the bank or to their financial institution. How is that data used, right? The point is not to just have the data. The point is to actually make it usable in a way that you can actually be profitable as a business, right? At the end of the day, we all want to make money. So the, there, there's a lot of debate around Facebook and data that they have and how they use it. Google and how does Google use search data? Banks and how do they use data that, uh, you know, spending habits, things like that. So there is a lot of debate around it. The whole point is to, to for us at least, is to make sure that whatever data is available that is actually used to get insights. Because everybody thinks of AI as, you know, this one big machine sitting in some big server that's, you know, churning through all these uh, scenarios and has cognitive ability. It doesn't, right? The whole part of the beauty of the human brain is that we can take information from 10 different sources and process it and make a decision. The machine learning is not there yet. Machine learning is very task-based. You give me a task, I will do it a thousand times, and I will do it better, right? That's the way we use machine learning. But there's all this concept of, oh, it's either all machine, no human, or all human, no machine. That just isn't the right debate. The debate is what is the right balance between taking data, processing it through a machine, but still having human beings either validate it, control it, get insights out of it, so it's, it's always that challenge. And the way we have solved that challenge is we are currently about 50% machine, 50% man, right? At the maximum, we'll get to 80% machine, 20% man. And that's about it. It's, it this is, 
if you're lending to businesses, you can never be 100% machine. This is a person-to-person -person business, right? And that in itself holds a lot of uh, issues around security and the data availability, et cetera, et cetera. So these are conversations that are very important to have, uh, but you can't have it in a vacuum. You can't say, oh, there's data out there. It's my data. I'm not going to share it. I mean, it's, it's, you have voluntarily given data to a bank. It's just that's just the way the world works, right? The question is, is the bank secure enough? Does the bank have controls in place? That's why I think regulation actually is a good thing when it comes to AI and, and data protection because, yeah. you know, we're all human beings. We all have evil instincts and we all want to get around shortcuts, et cetera. So the regulations do help because it does give us a box to play within that's big enough to still be innovative but not be restrictive. So data is, is, is a real, you know, it's a real buzzword nowadays, but it's just how it's used, it's more, more important than, than the fact that it exists. That it exists. And, and Natalie, I think, I'm curious from an Innovate Finance standpoint, I'm assuming AI is just an incredibly hot spot. It, it is, um, but to, to be honest, within FinTech in the UK, everything. It's is a hot spot, hot. it's just one big flame. No, and, and, and yeah. actually that, that sounds silly, but because we've got such a wide permissive regulatory environment that is encouraging so much innovation, and because if you're, if you're a FinTech, you can find across every vertical and every part of financial services an opportunity to significantly improve whether it's back office or B2B or B2C, or actually there's almost no part of the financial landscape in Britain where there isn't an awful lot of innovation going on, yeah. which, which actually makes Britain a really, really exciting place to be. And yes, most fintechs have AI and machine learning somewhere in their, their psyche, but actually the landscape is so wide. It was interesting, we had a conversation mm. in the green room? What do we call that spot down there? Yeah. And we're in the basement. Well, we had a conversation down there, and um, Farah, you were talking about it. When we're talking about AI, it's, it's interesting the different use cases and applications. Like you mentioned Encino yeah. here in the U.S. And yeah. If you're not familiar with Encino, we're talking back office operational yeah. side, the, the yeah. boring part yeah. of banking. But there's yes. applications there. Yeah, exactly. Look, you know, Encino, um, as you, I don't know if any of you know, but it was sort of incubated within a bank, Live Oak Bank in the U.S., and so it's a similar model to what Oak North and Oak North AI does, right? So Oak North AI was sort of incubated within Oak North Bank and built and, and machine was, was learned, et cetera, et cetera. Algorithms were built, et cetera. So Encino on its base is just automating, making it more efficient to have one document move from one place to another. You'd be surprised if you talk to any commercial bank in the U.S. And there's, by the way, 5,000 of them how inefficient they are. They're literally people taking documents from one place to another. I mean, you would think this is like, you know, ancient times because it's so easy to see the automation and just efficiency gains by just automating the whole thing. That's basically what Encino is doing. Encino is not providing analytics, ingesting data, using machine learning, using insights from human beings, and and enabling human beings to make the decision. Of course, we'd never make the decision. The platform is not a decision-making platform. So it, but both of those connect, right? You still want the process to move along as you are doing your credit insights, having the monitoring capabilities, et cetera. So we ourselves and our own bank with our AI capabilities use Encino because we still need the boring stuff to work, but work more efficiently. So there are actually applications within the fintech universe of one application and another application actually talking to each other. Because one thing we always get is, oh, you are a one platform. How about the five others that I have 
how do you connect to them? And I'm like, actually, you know what? I'm not going to connect to them. <laughs> You're using systems from the 80s. And I'm not joking. This is like yeah. actually true. I, I, I actually I, told me yesterday. 80s isn't bad. Yes. No, the 80s were awesome. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you'd be surprised, <laughs> really. So clearly, obviously, our system can't talk to that system. But in any case, the point is that you should have some sort of applicability, some connection. So it's not like one fintech doesn't talk to another fintech because they're competitors or whatever. The point is, the whole point is <laughs> to be collaborative and make the whole process more efficient because at the end of the day, the more efficient the banks are at actually, at least in our case, lending money to small businesses, the more efficient the businesses will be. Like that's the whole life cycle. Yeah, to give, to give y'all uh, kind of a, a snapshot view of the US and the, kind of a difference between the US and other countries such as the UK, Roughly about 4,700 banks in the U.S. Yeah. Another 6,000 credit unions. Yeah. Think, and we're at the lowest point since like 1936 on the number of banks. They're actually shrinking. Yeah. So just think about that. So if you are, if you really do have an idea of addressing the boring back office stuff for banks, please come find me, and I'll introduce you <laughs> to a venture capitalist, and we'll move on from there. Let's let's move on really quickly. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about faster payments because I do find this fascinating. Um, in, in the audience, how many of y'all are Americans? By raising hands, okay, you have no clue what I'm talking about when I say faster payments because we got squat over here. Um, so how would you describe faster payments in the UK, if you had to? The directive itself. Uh, well, I don't know about the directive itself. I'm not that well versed. But faster payments is, you know, obviously a scheme uh, that was put in place to really look at payment infrastructure and figure out how money is going to move faster. Uh, thus, faster payments. Although I think they just renamed it. Didn't yeah, they? yeah, they, and I, for, I think they called it Cell. That was a joke. <laughs> it's called. No, I think it's something weird. Like yeah, it's hey, UK weird. or something. Like yeah, that. it's a horrible name. It is a bad name, right? Anyway, uh, so it was put in place to essentially modernize infrastructure, and uh, a lot of countries in around the world have looked at that as sort of the, the premier type and have taken some of that technology and then built out their own faster payment rails. Uh, generally, faster payments are a good thing, especially if you think about some of the underbanked population that might be going from paycheck to paycheck, and they have a period then where they're waiting for that paycheck to actually clear and settle to them. Uh, usually that means then that they're forced to go to any type of lender like that that might not be charging the best rates, and it sort of perpetuates this cycle. So the more that we can increase the speed of payments, I think it's, it's everyone's benefit. This is tough to do in the U.S. I'm, I'm going to be blatantly honest here. This is going to be very hard to implement here. There's been a lot of talk about it, but um, one of the one of the the legacy drawbacks in the U.S. is we have such an ingrained banking system. The infrastructure is massive. The you know if you it's one of those if you look under the bonnet hood, Americans. Um, if you look under the hood at how actually money moves, how banking exists here in the U.S., it's a Frankenstein model that has evolved over decades, yeah. right? And we have an incredibly well-established um, banking system, right? I mean, let's give some props over here. We actually do incredibly strong banks, but that is an issue. I remember a couple years ago, the clearinghouse is here in New York, so we're talking about um, ACH and money movement and such. And the, one of the concepts for uh, faster banking was, instead of doing one batch file a day, we'll go to three. True freaking story. Three, that was really funny. Y'all didn't laugh. That is true. <laughs> I think we just shocked. Yeah, everybody was like, oh my God. But that, that happened. That was, that was thrown out there as a potential solution. Yeah, I mean, ACH is doing it, right? They're doing the same day ACH now, and I think yep. they're two, two clearing cycles. But. I'm, we're not judging, but uh, that's not faster 
payments. I think it's... Well, it is faster. <laughs> That's true. It depends what your baseline yeah. is from where you start, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not so confident um, when, it, when it comes to that. Uh, another topic that's interesting from a UK perspective is cross-border payments. So when we look at the US, um, definitely applicable in the US, but when we're talking about remittance and cross-border, it's a massive um, uh, industry and space within the UK environment. I mean, we're talking about the money movement, you know, and well, just moving across um, and, and travel in, in the UK is different, right? The whole concept of Monzo taking off, if you're not familiar, was waiving the foreign transaction fees, right? It became yeah. a travel card, yeah. per se. It was a nice part of that. Whereas in the past, I think you got traveler's checks, it was just for you, or <laughs> cash that had like Star Wars on it. That was really cool. But um, do you think we're making any advances in the US when it comes to cross-border? I mean, obviously, I'm sitting here, right? Look where I went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to put a spotlight on you, but are we making advances? Are we moving? Uh, so yes and no, right? Uh, so we do see cross-border providers that are looking towards digital services. They are trying to decrease their costs by automating you know, their AML, CFT processes. Uh, apologies if you guys don't know payment acronyms, but I can define this for you later. Uh, but one of the things where we're not actually making progress is that you know, we, we talked a little bit just now about faster payments. And if you look at some of our faster payments proposals and in infrastructure, uh, whether it's Zelle, whether it's RTP that the clearinghouse is running, uh, whether it's same-day ACH, again, a faster payment, uh, all of them exclude international traffic. Yeah, shocking. And uh, I mean, It is shocking, right? And you know, the reasoning behind it is just due to uh, the need to actually review payments, uh, you know, run things through OFAC screening. Uh, it's, it's a good intention, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it highlights a problem that, that we're not really addressing, which is on the reg tech side. So we want this like fast, snazzy infrastructure, but we're not matching that with the regulatory environment and trying to figure out on the reg side, how do we either modernize our regulations, which we probably should, uh, but if we're not going to do that, how do we actually look for technology to help us accomplish what those regs set out to do and meet then the obligations of a faster payment network? And, yeah, and it does look as if the, the whole, one of the issues that, that regulators and policymakers are really scratching their heads about from the IMF right the way through the central banks is, is how do you support or enable cross-border activity, which is the definition of what fintech is going to be. I mean, it's, it's going to be cross-border. How do you support that in an environment where uh, more, more parochial focus might be the case? Or how do you support things which are actually going to change by definition what individual legacy states might do to create some kind of common infrastructure, yeah. common architecture and common principles against this great legacy that lots of places have? So I think people are scratching their heads and, and the regulatory environment I think is probably not quite yet there to support. But maybe actually another plug for the UK. But yeah, why not? Actually, our regulators are thinking pretty actively on RegTech. Um, there's a lot of initiatives going on across all our regulators. And we've been behind the, inst the um, instigation of GFIN, which is the global regulatory um, network, which um, the UK is certainly trying to spearhead. And that's where, if we can share some of these ideas, um, particularly around cross-border issues like yeah. AML and KYC, and, and how do we create reg tech that just makes life simpler. Um, hopefully, if we can crack that, we actually make fintech better for the world, not just for the UK. I was looking right past you at the screen as you were talking. I see this little note, designing for our future, which is a great segue into this last segment, which is talking about the future, right? Mm -hmm. Every time you have a panel, you sit here and you go, so what about you know looking out mm -hmm. five years, 10 years? But let's actually do that real quick. Um, so we've already established, and it's a fact, that 
the UK, London in particular, fintech capital of the world, um, at least for another 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> so looking at that, how is important is it for the UK fintech innovation to be actually an influencer on a global scale, right? To be seen as that. I'll actually start with you. What do you think? I mean, is it is it an imperative for the, for London and for, I keep saying London because of the scene there, but there's actually fintech hubs in Manchester, Liverpool, yeah. across the country. I, Certainly, I think uh, the UK has to be, by definition, an outward-looking organization. FinTech is one of the great strengths that we have. I think we have uh, a regulated environment, we have skills, and we have increasing experience. uh, And that absolutely is something we should be looking to to, um, spread. But we also have similar ingredients in Singapore, you mentioned. So so this is going going to be a battle. It's going to be something which we should be looking to to build on, to export, to share learning, to build partnerships, um, to identify some of the things that will help um, in any market for progress to get made, which really improves consumer choice, makes things better, faster, and cheaper. So, to think of how to say this, has something kind of like Pexit affected the scene, in your opinion? And we talked about this backstage. Do we, do we think it really has Im- impacted fintech and the scene in London and the ability to see these companies continue to grow and, and bring in capital? I mean, my, my view uh, is, thankfully, no. Uh, I think we all had a lot of fears when the B word thing started yeah. being talked about a few years ago. Uh, but actually, most fintechs have just put their head down and got on with the job. Um, capital has kept flowing into the UK. Uh, I've talked to lots of investors who say, well, actually, the devaluation of the pound means that Britain is now cheap, so great, even more reason to invest. <laughs> hey, um, yeah. and, but, and Britain is an inherently a very global place. I mean, more than 40% of um, senior folk in, in fintech in the UK are non-Brits. So our outlook is, in, is incredibly global. So I think probably like most Brits, we've just kind of ignored the debate now and get on with the job. That's very British. Would you, would you agree? Uh, so I think that there's a tremendous benefit, obviously, when you think about like the EU in general and being part of a common market, um, not to take any sides. Uh, but uh, I, I think you're, you're right. Generally, the fintech scene still seems to be fine. I will say, though, that it, it, there are operational concerns. Uh, so when we think about licensing as an example, uh, the idea of passporting is potentially disappearing. So how do you future-proof? Do you look then to a market within the EU to establish an entity and get a license so that you have continuity? So there are concerns like that to, to chew on. So from an Oak North perspective, I'm curious, um, working on both sides of the pond, right, and looking at the differences there, um, what lessons do you take from rolling out you know, a solution like you have, a product you have, as successful as Oak North is, and, and we talked a little bit about this, the differences in the, in the, in the consumer and the, in the small business market here. What are one or two that really stand out to you? In terms of, so just generally, you know, the market for businesses here, like the number of small businesses just by quantity in the U.S. is almost four times as large as the U.K., right? Just, just establishing that, right? So the opportunity is technically four times as big, right? There's a lot more businesses here. Obviously, just the population is larger, entrepreneurship, whatever, all of that, right? So the question remains, like, how do you take something that worked in another part of the world and worked profitably and all that and transplant it here, given all the restrictions and, and the nuances and all that stuff, right? That's basically my challenge. 
you know, I, I started this business in the U.S. four months ago. That's basically my challenge. Like, how do I translate that to here? And what I found is it's not about copying, but it's about learning, as, as you just mentioned, right? You have to learn the lessons that we've learned in the U.K., the challenges we face in the U.K., and see what can we actually use from those learnings and apply it here, given all the nuances, et cetera. And oh, by the way, we are also doing the same thing in Asia, right? I have a counterpart in Asia, and I have a counterpart in the rest of Europe. So we are all sort of going about it in different ways. Now, challenges in, the, in Asia are different, right? Consumer tech uh, in Asia is way ahead. Like, you can go to a small fruit stand on the street in Shenzhen, and they say, do you have WeChat? Like, you pay by WeChat. Cash is just not there anymore, really. So it's just, it's different nuances, different things. But the point is that I always go back to, let's, have we built the AI platform? Yes, we have. Have we proven that it works? Yes, we have. The opportunities will just come. It's not about, okay, let's build it and sit back and relax and have people come to us and say how cool we are. It's build it, prove it, and then deploy it. That's, that's the, way I, the way we are thinking about it. And regardless of what geography you're in, that's, that's sort of our sort of larger thinking. All right, so last question, simple yes or no. Don't have to expand on it, just yes or no, all right? Let's see how them actually say yes or no. Five years from now, UK is still seen as the fintech capital of the world. Yes. No. It's a maybe right there. <laughs> like, yeah. No. Yes. So for the two that said no, where would you say it will be? New York. New York? Singapore. Yeah, I, I would look east. Pers my own personal opinion, I would look east for what's happening there. I do think it will definitely be a major influencer, but there's the... You need to look east, people, for what's happening in this space. And unfortunately, we're out of time. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes a very special FinTech Insider live in New York at DIT. Before we all head to back to the bar, because they will open it back up, I swear, we just have time to say thank you to all of our guests. So, Natalie Sini, thank you very much. Robin McKenzie, Andrew Bogan, Farah Lakani, and of course, you, the live audience. Thanks for being part of this and sticking with us. We also want to thank the Department of International Trade for inviting us to be part of this. You should have Googled us, folks. I don't know what to tell you. It's too late now. And as always, a special shout out to our producer, Laura Watkins. Wait, Laura. Michael Bailey. Michael, where are you? There he is. Michael Bailey, one of the greatest editors and videographers I've ever seen. Please don't forget to subscribe to Fintech Insider wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Fintech Insiders. You'll find more exclusive content from this amazing show. If you really love us, leave us a review on iTunes. Five stars, please. <laughs> um, New York, as usual, you've been awesome. We want to thank you all for listening. Have a great night. Thank you.